It's Friday the 18th of November. This is the Climate Alarm Clock. This week's headlines, COP27 discussions continue. Is there any progress or are we backsliding? Ireland climbs up to 37th place on the Climate Change Performance Index, but we're still a low performer. And the world population passes 8 billion people. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. I'm Dara Wynn. And it kind of feels a bit like COP is limping to its conclusion this year and we'll have the latest updates on the conference coming up in this episode. As always, I'm joined by Anna Pringle and Kira Daly. Anna, how are you keeping? I'm good, Dara. How are you? Not too bad now, not too bad. Kira, how are you? You'll be pleased to hear I am in much better shape and emotional well-being (laughs) than I was last week. That, this just, is why, because you're back with us. That's why, Kira. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Were you just missing the podcast and you you didn't know? Yeah, I love misery. That's why <laughs> I'm delighted with life this week again. Um, and I'm delighted that to say that uh, today we're also joined by Lauren Boland. So Lauren is a journalist with the Journal.ie who focuses on climate and was actually in Egypt at COP27 last week. So Lauren, uh, welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock. We're really pleased to have you here today. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Lauren, your reports have been fantastic coming out of COP. Um, really appreciate that. So thank you for joining us and give us your your on the ground view of it. Yeah, and I, forgive me in advance for all of the stupid questions I'm going to ask throughout this episode. <laughs> no, I, I don't think you can have a stupid question about COP because it's this funny thing where you have some people who know so much about it and then for some people it is a complete mystery. So I think it's good to have questions about it and to actually chat about what is COP and what is going on over there. Well, we'll see if you're still saying that at the end of the episode. <laughs> Um, so Lauren, before we get into the COP stuff, we're trying to find out more about all our guests' own climate journeys. And I suppose all of us here, we've come to the podcast having had an interest in climate change. For you, was it sort of a concern about climate change that brought you to journalism or was it the journalism that brought you to the climate? I had always been interested in climate, but... I hadn't initially, I think, made the link between that interest and what I was doing in journalism. And maybe some important context there is that I haven't been a journalist that long. So I finished college in 2020 and that's when I started working in journalism as well. Um, And it won't come as a surprise to anyone as soon as I say 2020. Yeah, I I graduated straight into the pandemic and, and started working in the midst of it all. So... For the first year or so of when I was in journalism, it was very much what was dominating the news cycle and all of our lives. So it was only kind of, I suppose, after a year maybe of that, um, you know, doing other things in that time as well. But that was definitely kind of the dominating theme across most of the coverage at that time. Um, But around a year and a half ago, there was kind of a decision made in the newsroom that we wanted to kind of start covering climate, you know, more we had been covering it but how to look at you know how to do it kind of right how to you know come at it in kind of I I, and give it the attention it deserves I guess so I kind of said oh I'd really like to be you know part of that um and then it's gone from there great um and you're now also doing the masters in in climate change in DCU that myself and Anna have uh, done and and highly recommend so it's great um I suppose then the other question that we're asking or 
uh, guess is what do you call this? What what is there a particular term you use? Is it climate change or climate crisis? And, and is there any reason why you you use that term? Yeah, so climate crisis would be what I would use most in my reporting, but I do think there's definitely still a role for climate change. Um, not to diminish from, I think climate crisis is a really important term, like, you know, crisis, emergency, those are, that's really important language to kind of communicate how significant, how serious the problem is. Um, But the way I think about climate crisis is that that's a term for describing kind of what it is we're experiencing and, and what we're going to experience, all of the sort of devastation and impacts that are coming with it. And then climate change is useful for describing the process of how that is happening so in my mind they're they're slightly different they have kind of two different uses yeah 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 so climate change is almost like the scientific thing and then the the, the crisis and emergency is the is the human and and sort of political aspect yeah that's a good that's a good way of of looking at it all right so i think we'll d- dive into the cop stuff I suppose starting off, Lauren, what, you know, it was really interesting to hear what you were saying to Kira there about how people know loads of it. What was your own experience like? What, you know, was it a a big shock to the system or what is it actually like on the ground there? Is it a big party? <laughs> um, do you know what? I mean, it's big is the right word. It's the scale of it, I think, really surprised me. You know, I obviously know going in, this is a massive event with tens of thousands of people, but it's one thing to know that. And it's another thing to actually be there and experiencing it where there are so many people and so many different things going on and everybody kind of playing different roles. And that's really interesting from the journalism perspective, because you're looking around and and there's so many different so many different stories that you could tell so you kind of have to decide in okay in the time that I have who do I want to talk to and 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 where do I want to go and what do I need to see while I'm here um and there's parts of that you can plan and there's parts of it that are just you know you're walking through the pavilions and you kind of stumble across something really interesting um sounds like a music festival yeah (laughs) um I suppose like um it's interesting when you say that because there, there is the very serious side of it with the negotiations and everything, but then um, there is that kind of maybe slightly frillier stuff around the edges. And I was speaking to one uh, NGO worker over there from Malawi, um, and it was her first cop as well. And, and she was kind of saying to me that all of that kind of frilliness around the edge, like she felt it, it was, just seemed very strange and that like her perspective on it was, you know, this could be a much better event if we just stripped it back and had really just down to business instead of all that kind of things happening around the edge. There's different arguments, like you could talk to different people, everyone has a different perspective on it. You know, the the other argument then is by getting experts and activists together, you have, there's more pressure kind of on the leaders who are there. Um, It's also an opportunity for kind of, I think maybe solidarity building in a way when you have activists together kind of talking about these issues um, but but there is that other argument to it as well. So it, it's hard to know whether or not it is the best way of, of coming at these issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose last week we were talking a bit about COP from an Irish perspective and Micheál Martin's speech. So since then, are there any notable things that have happened in uh, from an Irish perspective over a COP? 
Yeah, it's been a busy enough two weeks for, I suppose, Irish politicians going over. So we had the Taoiseach there, first of all, for the World Leader Summit. But then uh, you'd Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, following him quickly afterwards. So Simon Coveney was over there uh, for one day uh, and he had some bilateral meetings with leaders from uh, Somalia, from the Cook Islands. Um, he actually met the Foreign Affairs Minister of Egypt as well, who's the COP27 president. Um, and then straight away after him, you had Minister Colin Brophy, who's the Minister of State for Overseas Development Aid. Um, and he was at COP for two days. And actually, he earlier this year visited northern Kenya, which has been obviously devastated by droughts this year. And he he spoke quite strongly about the impact that being there how that has shaped kind of his whole perspective on climate change and and he kind of he had he spoke very directly about like how he feels that the kind of spirit of the Paris Agreement is nearly dead and buried were the words he used and and really kind of telling leaders you have to step up um and it it is unusual to kind of get a statement that explicit from politicians about it so that that Mm -hmm. did kind of stand out to me over there um and then and then this week you have Eamon Ryan, so he's here now for the second week and he he's also having those kind of bilateral meetings and meetings with different groups and coalitions, but um, he's also here in, a, in, the, in the capacity of being with the EU and kind of looking at the negotiations. And in particular, he's been made the EU's lead representative on the loss and damage negotiations, which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, we've got, it is interesting, especially when you have um, Mary Robinson came out pretty strongly My during hero. the week as well, um, Kira's hero, but saying that there's a lot of concern about the loss and damage negotiations. So do you think Eamon can pull something out of the hat with that? I mean, it's a bit of an uphill battle. Um, he is, and he is coming at it from the EU perspective and the EU, along with the US last year, were kind of pulling back on the efforts that developing countries were trying to kind of push for around establishing a mechanism for funding loss and damage supports um, or just or just in general kind of providing funding to support vulnerable countries affected by the climate crisis. Um, it was the US and the EU last year who kind of held, held that back. Um, and so now he's there this year as the EU's man on the ground on that. Um, even today or, or the day we're recording this, there was uh, there's a proposal that came out from the G77 and China, where they were setting out what they think the the kind of funding arrangements coming out of this COP should look like. Um, and Eamon Ryan was saying, oh, we like some of that. We don't like other parts. Um, so we're going to go away and have a think about it. So um, it's, it's, it's really still up in the air what the kind of final agreement will look like on that. Yeah, there's a lot of jockeying going on. And and just to be clear, the G seventy seven and China is that is that is that a that's the network of the lesser developed countries, is it or? Yeah, so the G seventy seven, the name is a bit misleading. It's actually about I think it's one hundred and thirty countries, a bit more than that, um, kind of developing countries, um, and they would you know be working together on a lot of this area where. Um, they're most affected by loss and damage. Um, and then China was China was part of the proposal that was put forward. And actually something that Eamon Ryan said was um, that the EU's position is that the funding that comes out of this COP, it would need to be 
targeted to the countries that are right now being, say, most affected by the climate crisis. So he, he essentially, he, he explicitly referenced China and he said that his view and the EU's view was that the funding would need to be more targeted at the countries being most affected by the climate crisis um, and less so on somewhere like China, where um, it is now a wealthier country than it was in previous years. So that's some of the, the back and forth that you have on all of these kind of negotiations. But China last week had indicated that they were willing to support and maybe even contribute to loss and damage yeah. funding. So um, so it's kind of interesting to see how it all you know changes from week to week. Mm. I suppose last week we were saying that, you know, a few countries had sort of contributed to, to a fund, even though it was gestures, it was quite um, symbolic. Um, but it sounds like at the moment it's just sort of really in deadlock of negotiations is that kind of where loss and damage is at at the moment i suppose we've seen there's been some countries have made individual commitments to to climate funding to loss and damage funding um but you know we are in the final few days of the conference now so the focus really is on moving it from those country by country contributions to seeing can we establish something on a more unified basis um, for Ireland's part, Eamon Ryan, he announced funding of 18 million euro towards international climate finance. But I think it's always worth noting with any numbers that Ireland puts out is that we have already pledged this figure of 225 million over the next few years. So any smaller figures that you hear coming out now around this type of thing, they're generally speaking always going to be adding up to that bigger number. So, okay. so it's it's repledging something that's already been pledged. Yeah, it's it's kind of I suppose the announcements when they're made are more about announcing where like how the cookie is going to be cut. I suppose yeah. um you know where how, where this ten million is going to go and where this five million is going to go. Um, even that eighteen million, like some of it is being split into quite small chunks it's it's i think that the breakdown on that is i think like 1 million going to one fund and 1 million going to another fund um and then 10 or 11 million going to another and the remainder to to a fourth one you know so it is um they are they are drops in the ocean really uh, you know compared yeah. to the type of funding that is needed um yeah something that you said there actually about you know needing to see a more coordinated aspect i think there was an editorial this week uh, that 30 news outlets from around the world put out together sort of a real call to action on climate action and they were kind of saying the opposite so they said like all the measures we need to see need not wait for coordinated international action that countries could implement them on on regional and national levels so sort of really really calling for you know any action and that 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 will get things things going um from an irish perspective it was published in the independent and the examiner um so just really calling for you know everyone to act and do everything they can and dara i know you well there's a skeptic in you who's got a problem with them publishing that don't you uh <laughs> yeah yeah uh, there is there is yeah um i suppose i was you know, just going to ask were they going were they including the media and everybody that has to act yeah, so I, I mean, I suppose I would see parallels uh, in Michal Martin's speech almost last week where he was saying one thing and is kind of doing another. And I guess it's the same that it's brilliant that that these papers are putting in this really strong editorial. But then, you know, is their climate coverage going to match 
the tone of this editorial for the rest of the year um and and i'm not sure um so i guess that's where i'd be a little bit cynical about that wouldn't be like you (laughs) (laughs) um getting back to cop then and i suppose the irish theme um kira um your good friend bernard looney was at cop Oh, this guy, why are you saying his name to me? I can't with the moons. <laughs> yeah, and guys, like, I don't know what to make of this. Like, I, it's very emotionally stressful for me to see his name there. Like, why is he there? I read the articles that you sent about it. He's there with uh, Marish, how do you say that country? Mauritania. Mar- yeah, so I, su- so I suppose for people who maybe haven't listened to previous seasons, uh, Bernard Looney is the CEO of BP. And he's from, he's from Kerry. He's from Kerry. <laughs> from Kenmare and Kira is a big That's fan. That's important, guys. <laughs> um, and we were sort of, you know, ta- he came up while we were chatting about BP's profits uh, last season. But what was unusual was that he was at COP27. He was at COP this year as part of the official delegation of Mauritania. Um, so that meant that he got to go into the blue zone, the zone where only high-level officials from each country are meant to be in where the really heavy negotiating takes place um so yeah very so hard. for me it was confusing as to why he was there like why is uh why is he a delegate for an african country like what well, i i don't get the link why is he there so there's a lot of i have a suspicion there's some sort of like untoward action there or intention but go ahead so there's a lot of links between BP and their oil production and Mauritania. Um, yep, and they have major investments in Mauritania. And then the official story was that he was going in to sign uh, some document. A deal? Yeah, but... A signing ceremony, and it was about green hydrogen, I think. Yes, he was, yeah, so he was going so in... So-called green hydrogen. Yeah, so the sto- the story is that he was going in t- for a signing ceremony for green hydrogen, but there's been a lot of scepticism and cynicism around that. Um, Lauren, I'm not sure what your uh, thoughts are on that or, you know, having been there, how big of a deal it is for someone like him to get into the blue zone. It, it's definitely not. It's not just him. There are a lot of fossil fuel lobbyists there this year. There was a, a an analysis done and I think it was found that actually this year was significantly more compared to last year. And then there's different ways that they can be there because um, there's all these different badges. There are there are all these different ways you can access the blue zone. So um, you can have one of the, the party badges, which is where you're kind of officially there as part of a country's delegation. You can have a party overflow badge where you're you're kind of half officially there as part of an official delegation. Um, or then there's these, like there's media badges or then there's observer badges, which are meant for kind of like activists or experts type of people who maybe aren't part of an official delegation. Um, so there are, there are various ways that they can get in. There's also then outside the blue zone, there's the green zone, which when you walk through it it's it's i was actually really surprised by how just how much it feels like a trade fair uh the green zone it's very much kind of everybody um or when i say everybody i mean places like there were some of the egyptian government departments there were financial institutions there were universities there were 
uh, Epson, the printer company was there. It's it's kind of a, it's a bit of a, a mishmash of all different things, but that's maybe where it is possibly a little bit, a little bit easier to get access into um, and where you might more expect to find businesses or, or companies kind of trying to present themselves as maybe more environmentally friendly than they are. Uh, it wouldn't be, I think, surprising to see that kind of engagement there. But um, that kind of presence of fossil fuel lobbyists in the blue zone more and more, especially if it's not kind of explicitly disclosed what their connection are. Yeah, well, I mean, as, as um, somebody from Glo- somebody from Global Witness said that, like, you know, BP could sign that deal with Mauritania anywhere and doing it at COP27 is just so clearly greenwashing. Um, you know, so and, and to go in there as a delegate as one of the the delegation from Mauritania, which is a very poor country. So there's a, the, B, the BBC had a statistic about this. Let me just find it. Where they said, oh yeah, they pointed out the BP made $8.2 billion profit in the third quarter alone of 2022. And Mauritania, less than half the population have access to electricity. That's insane. <sighs> so yeah. just that, that juxtaposition of that is, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's no, a it's, uncomfortable. It, it is, yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 and it's, yeah, it's hard, it's hard not to be cynical about about COP when when you see stuff like that going on. So, Lauren, you kind of mentioned the blue zone and the green zone at COP, and I suppose at Glasgow last year there would have been an almost another zone, the protest zone, where there was lots of activism happening outside the event itself. What was there much of that going on, or has there been much of that happening at at COP this year? Definitely not as much as other years, um, and people definitely expected that going into it, because of the nature of Egypt as a country and the way protesting is treated there. Um, interestingly, if you looked at the guidelines that were in the the UN documents that were available on the websites for participants, um, they don't explicitly um, say you're not allowed to protest or anything like that. They, you know, it's acknowledged in those documents that they that the organisers expect there to be protests at COP. But there's all these stipulations of, you know, they wanted people to give 36 hours notice um, to have a protest or, or 48 hours if they were planning it somewhere in the city other than at COP itself. Um, and kind of listing out, you know, you can't, um, you know, chant or hold signs if they're kind of directed at a specific person or, you know, a specific kind of entity, all of these kind of rules. And then and then a list of, you know, what the consequences could be for for breaking those going from, you know, having your your access, say, to the green zone, for example, maybe taken all the way up to imprisonment. Um, wow. So that definitely, I think, before even anybody gets there, that puts a certain kind of shadow over it. Yeah, yeah, sounds very, very high risk uh, compared to compared to other years. Um, yeah, because and then when you get there, like my experience, I was only there for kind of the first half of the first week, and my experience being there for four days, and, and I was there for you know from right early in the morning until late at night, and I didn't come across any protests. I do know of at least one or two that were there while I was but I didn't cross paths with them and I think that in itself is probably quite unusual to be at a cop um, and, and to not kind of encounter any protests. I do know that then later later on last week they did ramp up a little bit there were kind of some more protests particularly on Friday Um, I think kind of timed 
uh, a little bit, you know, to coincide with like Fridays for Future. Friday is kind of now a day for climate protests. Um, so there were a lot more demonstrations there on that Friday. There's also been a couple of um, protests at speeches. So for, uh, for example, when Joe Biden was here um, or was there speaking at COP, um, he was interrupted by a couple of protesters. Um, there was also an event um, with Russian officials that was actually interrupted again by protesters. Now that was more um, protesting Russia's war on Ukraine um, as mm-hmm. opposed to their climate action. Um, but it's interesting, it's interesting to see that there there has still been activism and, and protesting, even despite that kind of sentiment, you know, being put out from these official documents um, that would very much not make you feel inclined to protest. There, you know, that activity is still happening and people are, you know, not being um, put off by it. But I think definitely at the start, it, it was slow to kind of get that momentum. And it still definitely isn't at the level that you would have seen, for example, last year in Glasgow or, or in other years or in different places. Can I ask you, how are the how are those protests being received on the ground? Like, obviously, it's a completely different circumstance to any of the other kind of previous cops is there any sort of tension in the air or anything like that or yeah i mean if if we're talking about the protests say at those events those yeah. those protesters are, are removed straight away from yeah. the events by security um, and okay. if we're talking about the demonstrations that are kind of happening around the place um you know they are tolerated but they are quite there is a sort of a feeling I think around them that they're they're probably more contained than they might have been elsewhere and they're all happening kind of within the the UN's you know within the conference say itself as opposed to safe zone yeah as opposed to like last year in Glasgow on the Saturday there was a massive march through Glasgow where you had Greta Thunberg and, and and thousands of activists um there hasn't been that in, in Sharm el-Sheikh. It, it has been much more kind of smaller demonstrations in kind of main areas in the blue zone in particular, um, which are still important in, in in what they're doing. And in some ways, when there are smaller protests, there's maybe more specific attention gets drawn to particular issues that a particular mm-hmm. demonstration might be kind of raising. Um which is interesting to even even get to see that because I was kind of looking through the photos from some of the protests on Friday and, and there were, you would see there were lots of different groups all kind of having different protests, you know, one say about kind of uh, against kind of tapping gas on the continent of Africa or another one from medical workers kind of talking about the, the impact of the climate crisis on health. And it's interesting to see those different voices that sometimes are harder to pick out in kind of larger mass protests um yeah. but obviously that it, it's still very much not ideal to have limits on protests and um, that's just something that's kind of interesting to note when it is pared down that little bit it, you do kind of get to spot more easily kind of what the causes i guess being raised are okay it definitely seems like a very different energy than we saw in glasgow last year but there was as much going on outside i think cop as there was inside um so it's great to get that perspective. I was struck today by Lula making his arrival at um, at COP, and uh, one of the somebody from the Guardian said that Lula is definitely this year's Obama. Apparently, they were queuing Who's up Lula? to see him. Lula, the new president of Brazil, and also the old president of Brazil, but the newly elected president of Brazil. Who Do we has, like him? Do we hate him? Well, he has promised to restore the Amazon. Okay. We, we think he's one of the good guys he's gonna, so far. He's going to help, like the tech company 
<laughs> no, the forest, Kira, the forest. Oh, good. Even better. Um, and yeah, and then uh, it, with that, he has just Brazil, Indonesia, and um, the Congo, which are the three biggest rainforest nations, have just announced they're going to have an alliance to try and save the rainforests in their countries. So, so that's a positive development. Um, okay. But apparently, Lula was the rock star today in Sharm el Sheikh. So. And so that's on today, we Wednesday. like him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, that's on Wednesday. We're recording this on yeah on Wednesday, yeah. Um, it I, is a major I, shift for Brazil to be coming in with with that political landscape as opposed to to what we were looking at in previous years. From there, I think if there's one positive maybe to be taken away from climate this year, that's that that is one because obviously the Amazon. Um, and the way it's treated and exploited it does have such a significant role for climate. Yeah, and we like we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when he got elected, and and I was talking about like the statistics on how much he managed to get deforestation down the last time he was in power. It was like really incredible. Um, so you know, it's 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 good signs. Um, and interesting, yeah, that the biggest story. The biggest positive climate action probably won't be coming from COP. Um, it, it, it's it's from Lula's election, and then also um, this week at the G twenty summit, there was a big uh, climate announcement as well that uh, countries are going to be funding Indonesia to um, to move off from coal uh, faster than than was anticipated. So strange that that is being announced at the G twenty rather than at COP. Yeah, and the G20 have also said that they are going to um, put pressure on COP to keep the 1.5 degrees warming target within reach as well. So that also is coming from the G20 back to COP. So for the carers in the audience, guys, who are the G20? They're well, between the, the guys. G- between the G77 <laughs> and the G20, yeah, we're throwing a lot of groups around here. Um, so the G20 is the group of leaders of the 20 biggest economies in the world. Okay, so... They're going to bully the guys at COP27 into doing the right thing. Watch out, Bernard. Um, Don't say no. I can see you guys getting ready to say no. That's how it's going to go. Uh, but it, yeah, it's it's a strange one that, you know, I would prefer if they were showing leadership at COP. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a hard one for me to wrap my head around, to be honest. Um, and then, and I, like you mentioned, the 1.5 degree target may be slipping away. Um that is something that's been discussed quite a bit this week, Lauren. I don't know if there's, you know, anything, if you've any thoughts on that. That it sounds like people are trying to get away from the one point five target. I think the problem with climate action is that if we aren't significantly moving forward, we are effectively backsliding. So even if each year we're kind of making some commitments and you know creeping forward with them. We know that those kind of incremental changes still aren't going to be enough to keep within 1.5. And even at that, we know that at 1.5 degrees of warming, there are still a lot of impacts for the climate at that. We're seeing already with warming of around 1.1, how that's impacting countries already yeah and so we i think you know sites do need to be to stay set on the 1.5 um we need to acknowledge i think we need to acknowledge that with our path right now we are 
on track to overshoot that. And I'm and I'm not saying we need to acknowledge it to kind of bring in the doom element. I mean, we do need to bring it home for people how serious this is. But I think we need to keep it in sight because of how important it is to not lose hope of making it. There's a lot of debate around, you know, what does hope mean in terms of climate? And, and I think like it's so hard, but you can't give up hope because climate isn't this, you know, black or white situation where one day everything is fine and the next day everything is destroyed. Yeah. We're already seeing at each day, you know, people's yeah. livelihoods and lives getting getting totally turned upside down. So for me, what being hopeful about climate means is you know, focusing on the, you know, how every percentage of a degree of warming can make a difference directly Absolutely. to, you know, people's lives, because it's not that, you know, one day is going to tip the balance. It's about every day, you know, what are we doing today? And also looking in the longer term of how can we, you know, think about the future and, and stop the devastating impacts that are kind of coming down the line. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I mean, I, you, you hear the thing that if we miss the 1.5 degree target, the next target should be 1.51 and 1.52. I think I think the thing that really annoys me about this is, like, realistically, you know, I feel I've known 1.5 degrees has been out of the question for, you know, for probably a couple of years at this stage. Um, and it's, it's, it's a case of that they're just sort of, trying to get rid of the target rather than saying we have failed and there's they're completely getting to avoid accountability by this backsliding by saying oh yeah Yeah. we're we're actually not going to do that and it's like you didn't even try to do that this was just a thing that was written down on paper there was never a real plan it was just words uh you didn't take any actions to do it and so i would you know if you're going to backslide i think you know a lot of people in climate circles know we're not going to get 1.5 the leaders need to come out and say we're we have failed to get 1.5 that's what they need to do they need to there needs to be accountability on it is what i is what i feel rather than just sort of moving the target and then they can pretend they didn't fail because they changed to a different target you know uh really but, but, I, but I think dara though you can't if you i think i agree with you but then i also think they need to say we have failed and we're going to try even harder I, and Absolutely. we can't give up on yeah. 1.5. I mean, but the 1.5 is always arbitrary and we don't know what, as, yeah. as Lauren said, we don't know what will happen on the planet at 1.5. Yeah, yeah, no, ab- ab- um, absolutely. But but this, uh, yeah, yeah. But but that's why leadership, that's why leadership is so important. And we, we criticised Michal Martin's speech last week because he said, talked about leadership. And then this week he's telling people, uh, he was um, in a meeting with Sive O'Neill and a couple of other activists, Hannah Daly, I think, and he's telling them, oh, but we have to bring people along with us. We can't get out too far oh, ahead this, of people. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but that's what leadership is. Leadership is leading from the front. It's not leading from behind. They made a great point. I think it was in that uh, article that Friends of the Earth, Earth, a blog post that Sive from Friends of the Earth had shared about, you know, the effort that they put in during COVID. They took drastic action and they led people and people followed. And you just don't see that with climate action in Ireland. And that is probably where the crux of our issues with Michal Martin's speech lay last week. We were just like, oh, you are talking out your rig. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then um and then i suppose that leads on to the the climate change performance index um 
and and where Ireland sits in that. Anna, do you want to tee that oh, up? Oh yeah, for us? and oh, well, you know, the good news is we've jumped nine places this year. So clap, clap on the back for Ireland. What um, is what is the climate change performance index? So it is um, an index that's compiled every year by a group called German Watch, and they just look at all of the data from around the world and they rank countries, uh, their performance, and they they don't have anyone at number one, two, or three because. Nobody's good enough, but um, not surprisingly, the Scandinavian countries tend to be the highest. And Chile is actually number six. But Ireland um, was miserable for years, but we've now climbed to m- not quite mid-table, but number 37. Lucky number on the 37. Table. Woo. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so we're still considered a low-performing country, and we are one of the worst in the EU. I think there's three wow. EU countries lower than us, and we're way lower than the EU average. Um, you have and, to put and, that on our TripAdvisor page. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> How do you rank? Um, and you know, and so they're looking at things like you know we've used more coal in power generation in the last year. Our agricultural policies are still um, contributing to biodiversity loss and to climate change. And then they're saying we're really improving in policy. We've got the Climate Change Act. We've got all that, but now we have to get to action and implementation and. That's what it's all about. So, yeah. so we still have a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. So I, su- I suppose it's it's a different kind of an index because it doesn't just take in your emissions and your emission reductions. It, it accounts for different things like policy, and and that's Ireland bringing in our our carbon budgets and and uh, the climate action bill that has helped to move it up rather than any actual action. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that we our emissions are still going up and that when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions per capita, we are actually ranked 57, well, not 37. So we have a long way to go. Yeah. Growth isn't always good. Wise yeah. words from Kira Daly, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think what I find so interesting about that is there's this sentiment sometimes in Ireland that oh, we're too small for anything we do on climate to matter, whether that's good or bad. Mm. And when you see rankings like that and that kind of external analysis of how Ireland is doing compared to other countries, it really brings home how much it does matter what we do and how we are still behind other countries and that that does matter. It's, It's not, you know, when we produce emissions, they're not just... It, it, it's not it's definitely not the case that they don't count <laughs> just because we're yeah. producing less you know or fewer than other countries because we're smaller yeah it does still matter what we're doing you know both in terms of the 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 scientific impact of it but also even just in terms of international politics and, and how can we go to an event like cop and put pressure on other countries when we can't even get our own house in order yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, actually, that kind of leads into, our, I think, into our final story that we were going to talk about, about the news that came out this week, the UN um, announcing that the world population has reached 8 billion people. And just what you were saying, Lauren, if we are not willing to reduce our emissions, if everybody in the world produced the same number of emissions as we do in Ireland, that 8 billion is by no means sustainable. Mm-hmm. And rich countries like us have an obligation not to do that and not to overshoot the resources on the planet. The argument of kind of overpopulation or or the argument that we need to reduce the world population. I'm always very skeptical of that kind of being, you know, set up in a climate context because it's it's not 
the problem isn't really that we have this many people it's that we're using so many resources we're yeah. we're living beyond our means is the problem um and so many of those 8 billion people aren't the ones that are contributing the most to emissions it is i mean say to go back to to the index that ranked i think 59 countries in the eu and together that kind of group contributes 92% of global emissions so it's so clear when you look at that you know kind of breakdown that some chunks of the world are we're way kind of over exploiting the natural world and way overusing resources and way over emitting our fair share um of greenhouse gases and then you have other parts of the world who have such little impact but obviously are, are bearing the brunt of it now um, so I, 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 I don't think it's fair to kind of point to just the, the overall population figure as the problem because it's, it's what we're doing, not kind of just how many of us there are. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would agree. I think I come from a, a pretty similar uh, school of thought on that, Lauren, is, is when these kind of statistics are raised, you know, you do have to ask, why are you saying this? You know, are you saying this because you're saying, oh, well, the world's population is 8 billion and I'm just one person. So what's the point of me doing anything? Um, or are you saying this because you are aware of the inequalities? You are aware that there are billions of people who ha- aren't even having their basic human rights met. And we are contributing to that by our consumption. And, and I do think that, yeah, I think it's dangerous when you raise when you raise these kind of um when you raise these kinds of issues, people often use them as an excuse. Um, to oh, yeah, not and they get used, they get they get taken up by, you know, extremists. Yes. As well, about population control and all of that. And but the UN was very careful in how they um, announced it. And, you know, they were very clear on that the planet can support this population, but, but only if the richest reduce their emissions and reduce their consumption. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's. I think uh, there was some of the UN press releases around this. We're talking about we now have eight billion reasons to act on climate change, and I think that's. Uh, I think that's a really good, a really really good way to to look at it and to you know look at yourself as one of those eight billion. Um, yeah. Not using it as a statistic to kind of yeah. distance yourself from the issue. Maybe we should finish with a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. He said, "The world has enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed." Oh, lovely, Anna. Thank you. Um, Gandhi has some great quotes. Very, yeah. <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs> um, yeah. Is he a the, COP27 or the G27? In spirit only. <laughs> um, before we move on, then we've kind of, so we've really gone through all our stories there. Lauren, do you have any sort of final words on COP or what we might expect in the last couple of days? I think... Definitely that it will probably run long. Um, I think that's a pattern with COPs now. Um, it's officially due to end today on Friday. Um, at the time we're recording this a little bit earlier in the week, um, there's very much still not an agreement. Um, I can't imagine that having changed dramatically by Friday. So very likely it can continue on into the weekend, the same way it did last year and in previous years. Um, and, you know, people have talked about loss and damage being the litmus test of whether this COP can be considered a success or not. I think that's very true. I think no matter what kind of decision is made on loss and damage, it will still 
probably it's looking like it will still be 2023 or or more likely 2024 by the time we even kind of do start to see the the ramifications of whatever decision is made now kind of start to play out um so you know really you're looking at kind of cop 28 and even cop 29 that will be at by the time you know the kind of the gears have kind of turned and really start to bring these things into action yeah yeah um. deep sigh <laughs> you guys <laughs> um okay uh shall we move on to our not climate story then and anna maybe we'll hand over to you yeah this was um very sad day this week um, when Vicky Phelan died on Monday. And for anybody, I think everybody in Ireland knows who Vicky Phelan yeah. was. Um, she was a heroic campaigner. She really stood up for herself against the state and for also other people who were affected by the cervical smear scandal. And so I just thought we should just acknowledge that, that you know, Vicky was just a fantastic woman who... I think the whole country really was grieving yeah. about her loss this week. And yeah, so I just thought we we just had to acknowledge that and say, may she rest in peace and, and what a great woman she was. Yeah, absolutely. This news was so sad and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in saying that I shed a tear when I heard it. She just was like, she is just such a great representation. There, you know, when you think of that Irish, that Irish woman, she can be real like, stern and stand up and she'll let you know what's what and Vicky was a brilliant example of how that can be put to use for such positive influence and like I just can't even understand where she got the energy to fight the fight that she did going through what she was doing it's just absolutely it's all of you know everything that we've just discussed and you take that big sigh and then you think about stuff people like Vicky feel and you go you just have to get on with it because it's the right thing to do and there are other people out there relying on you to do it. And not that I'm claiming what we're doing is in any way even close to what she is doing. But it's such a brilliant motivation and a reminder of why you need to stand up and do what's right. Yeah, she was. She definitely was an inspiration. And she also spoke truth to power always. Um, and like there was a she made a speech or in 2018, she made a speech and I just just some words from it that I think still resonate and resonate with everything we've been talking about, where she said to people, I don't want your accolades or your broken promises. I want action. I want change. I want accountability. You know, hear, hear, well said, Vicky Phelan, and may she rest in peace. She was a really a standard bearer for us all, I think. Well said, Anna. Those you know we, there's a few very memorable moments where Vicky Phelan was you know kind of speaking publicly but I think those kind of maybe first few instances kind of around 2018 I think will very much stay in people's memories yeah absolutely absolutely so that's our not climate story for this week a sad one yeah. but also an inspiring one absolutely yeah, yeah. um then before we go, we're going to try a little sort of five-minute roundup of anything and everything that we didn't get covered and maybe give some people some ideas of actions they can take. So I will start after uh, our cop uh, cynicism, start with a great news story, which is that um, the TD Patrick Costello took the government's decision to ratify CETA, uh, which is a 
trade agreement with Canada that, that would basically allow investor courts to sue the government if policies led to them reducing profits, so sort of restrictions on fossil fuels or anything like that. And the, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for them to ratify it. So CETA has not been ratified by the Irish government. So it's a great Yet. news story. Watch that space. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose <laughs> what we're flagging here is that there will be action to probably take uh, for people to take around CETA in the future, either calling for it to be brought to a referendum for the people or just lobbying TDs to... Um, to vote against ratifying it but it's it's an amazing story and well done to Patrick Costello who actually put his house up as collateral for the legal fees so if he'd lost there was a chance well, he would have lost his house which was just um, Hazel yeah. wouldn't have been happy with him <laughs> no I saw she made some jokes on, on Twitter about having to move back in with her mother um, <laughs> if if they had lost um, so I mean that was that was amazing amazing to see um, and then something else that we'll have more news on in a few weeks is that the government's target of 1 million electric vehicles in the climate action plan is going to be replaced so it's more of a focus on public transport and active travel so I think that's that's, uh, that's a positive development as well to see Although I have to say Dara I did see one comment saying that this is a blow against rural Ireland Even No it's not From some of the same people who had been saying that focusing on EVs was actually also leaving rural Ireland out so Well you, you I live in rural win. Ireland and I want to get the bus to town okay <laughs> guys <Yeah>. Exactly <laughs> Um yeah, so I mean, they are two. They are two good stories that we will have more on uh, definitely in the coming weeks. So then, in terms of events uh, coming up, there is we've been talking about loss and damage, and on Friday the twenty fifth of November, there is a special event on loss and damage with Lindsay Walsh uh, from Oxfam. So if you want to learn more about loss and damage, you can check the link in the show notes. It's on at four thirty on Friday. Um, for anyone involved in PR or marketing purpose disruptors who Kira, I know you're a big fan of. I love them. Actually this this um this event that they're having is kind of relevant to anyone really, any industry. So I wouldn't just limit it to the PR and the marketing guys. Uh, so yeah, they're doing a film screening of a film of a documentary called Good Life 2030. Um, so you can find out more information for that on the show notes. That's on the 29th of November in the Tower. That's for people like me that want to feel a lift in their emotion it will put you in a good mood let's give them a shout out <laughs> um yeah so that's on the 29th of november in the tara building um and then lauren for our people who are listening first thing on friday morning the journal have a have an event coming up yes so if you're listening friday morning uh we have an event friday afternoon on zoom where we're going to be chatting about all the latest on COP, so um, where things stand at that stage with the negotiations as it comes up to what is meant to be the last day. But as I was saying, it, it may very well not be. Um, maybe I'll have to eat my words. Maybe they will get everything done on time. But look, we'll see. Um, so yes, we're going to have a panel discussion on Zoom with myself, um, with Saiv O'Neill, actually, who was mentioned earlier, um, and also with a uh, an NGO worker um, from ActionAid. Um, so we'll be looking at kind of where everything where everything stands and, and kind of what the big issues have been. Um, and then also if people are interested in kind of more of what we have at the journal, we have a newsletter where we've been putting out COP updates, but it is also normally a monthly newsletter. And it's excellent. It's excellent. It's really good. 
All right, show off. I've signed up during the week and I can't wait after listening to talk you talking today. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, oh, that's great. But yeah, if, if anyone would like to sign up, it's called Temperature Check. Um, and it's, yeah, you can sign up through the journal. Um, but that's, it's always lovely to hear that people actually read it because it's funny writing a newsletter, you know, you send it out and, and it feels then like it only exists kind of in your own inbox versus say with an article, you can kind of, you know, you can see it like it's out there in the world and it exists the newsletter it feels it feels kind of strange <laughs> sending it off so it's great to hear people reading it no it's excellent akira and anna do you want to shout out anything before we go i'll just say that it is science week until sunday and there's lots of events on around the country um you can find out we'll put it in the show notes but there's a link links to lots of events um from the botanic gardens in dublin to tralee d- dinosaurs the body science tricks all sorts of stuff so there's a lot of cool science things going on this week I have something that's not an event but it's a recommendation a podcast a lovely interview with uh, Elizabeth Day her podcast is called How to Fail and she interviewed Greta Thunberg and I just want to say that it is going to light up your life it's she's just it's really really nice and endearing and very uplifting um, which is great to hear after two weeks of a very disappointing cop Uh, good way to end on a positive Absolutely. Um, Anna and Kira, thanks so much uh, for joining me this week, as always. You're welcome. Yeah, silence. <laughs> we're like, yeah, okay. Can we go yet? Um, and Lauren. Lauren, if he asks you for a compliment, don't give in. <laughs> um, Stay strong. <laughs> Lauren, uh, thanks so much for joining us this week. It's been absolutely brilliant um, getting your insight on cop and climate i know thanks mill it's been great yeah brilliant thanks lauren it's been she great gave in. i can't <laughs> believe it <laughs> best podcast ever <laughs> <laughs> um that is it for the climate alarm clock this week do if if you like what you heard do make sure to subscribe and review wherever you listen you can follow us on facebook and Instagram at Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter at The Climate Alarm. You can email us at climatealarmclock at gmail.com. And if you do like what you hear, make sure to send uh, some of what we do on to a friend or family member. That's it for this week, and we will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye.